about all I can do right now is ask the Lord not to let me mess this up. Wow. As I said, we've sung the gospel. We've heard the gospel. We have prayed the gospel. May the gospel, even to us who are believers, change us because we've heard it fresh and, and heard it new all over again. I mean, how, how glorious is it to sing those great truths and to be able to say, Lord, teach us through what we sing and how we pray. Teach us, Lord, in all that we do. We come to the end of this series on the seven churches of Revelation. We titled that series, Christ Examines His Church. I only got to preach on two of them. The guys preached on the other five uh, while I was recuperating, and I appreciate their, their words were so powerful. Their sermons were so powerful. And I hope as you heard that, you listened to what Christ was saying to the churches and what Christ was saying to the church at Grace. I hope you listened to what the Scripture said about our own need to examine ourselves. As Jesus examined His church, He calls us to examine ourselves and to see where we are in our walk with Him. Now, the sermon I'm going to preach today may be one of the easiest sermons I've ever preached in my life, looking at chapter 4 and just seeing what John saw after he got those messages to the churches and what he saw when God opened up the heavens and said, look up here, come up here, see what's up here. Next Sunday may be the hardest ser- one of the hardest sermons I've ever preached. As I close out this series on Christ Examines His Church, and we just look at what does Christ demand. And look at what he said to his disciples. Things that to the 21st century ear, quite honestly, are a little hard to hear. Things that to to the church in 2018 seem like, oh, wait a minute. Jesus didn't understand where we're living today. Let me tell you something. Jesus didn't live physically in this era But Jesus understands 2018 better than you ever will, or I ever will. And when he speaks to us, he speaks pretty pointedly and pretty directly. But we've seen these seven churches. We've we've been looking at Christ examining his church, and literally what Christ thinks of his church as he sees it. We saw him talking about marks of every church, how how every church ought to be in, in relationship to the culture and the world around them. We saw that, that Christ calls his church to love him. And, and we saw that uh, the church at Ephesus had left that first love and was, was following after other things. And, and even as Derek prayed, had made their seeking of him and seeking the kingdom of God secondary as to their own desires. We, we saw that the church was to have a willingness to suffer for him that the culture would hate them and would hate us, and that the church of Jesus Christ is to love him with all their heart, soul, and mind, and strength, which we're talking about in our upward and outward uh, emphasis for 2018, 
But, but we saw that the church fails so many times when, when pressure comes, when, when persecution comes, when, when laughter or teasing comes, the church kind of cowers and is not willing to suffer even minor things for him. We saw that Jesus intends for there to be a truth of doctrine within the church. Doctrine is important. Doctrine teaches us who he is and what he's like. Doctrine teaches us how to live. Doctrine is just pulling from God's word what it is to believe in Christ and follow him in the 21st century. There's to be a correct truth in doctrine. There's to be a, a holiness in life. God expects his people to seek and pursue and desire holiness. Now, we tend to think of holiness as some other, you know, denomination, that, those, that holiness religion. That's not what we're talking about here, folks. We're talking about a purity of life and a purity of heart that seeks Him, that says, Lord, I may not perfectly do it, but I want to love you with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my mind. I, I, I want to pursue you. I want to be recreated in your image. I want to be made like you. Which the Apostle Paul says is, what he's doing in your life if you're a believer. We have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. But we're to want it. We're to desire it. We're to pursue it. Holiness in life. We're to, we're to have an inward reality. Not just an external religion. There's to be a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's to be a, an understanding that He is our Lord and He is our Savior, not in word only, but in life. There's an inward reality of even as that last song sang, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit within us, changing us, working in us. There, there's to be an evangelistic outreach to other. The church at Philadelphia, Jesus said, look, you're, you're doing the work that you're called to do in a very, very uh, evil place, evil culture, and God has opened a door for you to do it. Go through the door and be obedient. And God has opened a door and a time for you and me at Grace that we're to be involved in evangelistic outreach to others. If we really believe that Jesus, what Jesus said when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me, then that will give us a passion to go out and care about those that we care about and share the gospel with them. Even if they're not just like us. I was always impressed by Jesus after his resurrection. When he met Peter and the other disciples on the beach. And he looked at Peter and he said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. He said, then feed my sheep. He said, Peter, do, do you love me really? Peter just a little bit exasperated, he said, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, then tend my lambs. And yet a third time he looked at Peter and he said, Peter, do you, do you really, really, really love me? Peter in exasperation said, Lord, I've told you, you know I love you. And he said, then feed my sheep. There's an interesting thing there. Jesus never asked him, do you love sheep? Do you love people? He didn't ask him that. But he said, if you love me, 
you will do as I've commanded you. There's to be an evangelist outreach to others through the... That was extra, I'm sorry. There's to be an uncompromising wholeheartedness in everything. That's what Laodicea taught us. They had become lukewarm. They had just become lackadaisical in their walk with Christ. And, and Christ was calling them to an absolute uncompromising wholeheartedness, giving of themselves totally to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's sort of what we'll talk about next week. But in these seven churches, Christ saw that the church was hard-pressed by sin and error and lethargy. He, he was, that, that was all within sin and error and, and, and just a lethargic spirit within. And, and they were also hard-pressed by tribulation and persecution from without. Jesus knew that. We, we heard him talk about the evil de designs and the deeds of the Nicolaitans and the Balaamites and, and that woman Jezebel that they were tolerating within the church who was sexual immorality and these type of things that they were saying, well, we'll just overlook it. We, we see glimpses of the dilemma between Christ and Caesar, Christ and the state, Christ and church, uh, Christ and culture upon these Christians. And it's hard for them to stand firm in the midst of that kind of opposition. It's hard for them to stand firm in the truth of the gospel with all that going on around us. And they experience it much more than we do. Let me tell you right now, I mean, their, their livelihood and their jobs and their their life was on the line many times. We're not at that point yet. But more and more, it's becoming harder to confess the name of Christ without somebody saying, we don't want to hear that. You're pushing your religion down our throat. You're doing this, you're doing that. Let me tell you something. It's going to get worse. But yet Christ calls us to all these things. After John has delivered these messages to the seven churches, the only only example in all the scripture where we really have a dictation, where Jesus said, write these things down and just kind of dictate to him. The rest of it's inspired, and it's the inspired word of God, but there's not a, not a dictation talked about in any other place, but it is here. And after Jesus has done that, and John has received that, and, and perhaps getting ready to send it on its way, God says to him in chapter 4, now... I want you to see something really good. I've talked about sin. I've talked about error. I've talked about persecution. I've talked about struggle. I've talked about all these things going on within and without. But I want, to, I want you to see where your hope really lies. And so in the fourth chapter of Revelation, this is as far as we're going to go in the book of Revelation, at least right now, this is what John writes. Follow along with me in chapter 4 of Revelation, beginning in verse 1. And after this I looked, and behold, a door was standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, that is the voice of Christ, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And he who sat, sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were the 24 elders. 
clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. Think back to what Isaiah saw. Full of eyes in front and behind, and the first living creature like a lion, and the second living creature like an ox, and the third living creature like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. What did they say back in Isaiah chapter 6? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. The the same creatures around the throne of God now were around the throne of God in Isaiah's vision. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him, who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. Now, John goes on in chapter 5 and 6 and 7 to to complete this vision, and we'll mention it just briefly if I have time, a couple of things he says there. But mainly what I want you to see is what he sees in chapter 4. Because in chapter 4 of this book of Revelation, John begins to see the hope and the security of the believer and the church. It's not in our own ability. It's not in our ability to persevere. It's not in our ability to say, I'll stand strong no matter what. But it's in our ability to see God as he is. It's in our ability to see the Lord God lifted up high and glorified before man and before creature, uh, uh, he- heavenly creatures, before all mankind, to see God high and lifted up. It talks of his sovereignty. It talks of his power. It talks of his strength. John's focus turns from those flickering lampstands to Christ on the unchangeable throne of God. He talks about, he turns his attention from the lampstands that are in the churches, that the churches are, and he turns his attention to the one who sits on the eternal throne, the everlasting throne, the unchangeable throne of Almighty God. What a glorious truth. The churches of Asia were small and struggling in the midst of, and the might of Rome was inexhaustible, it seemed. What could a few defenseless Christians do? What could a few weak, small Christians do do if an imperial edict were to come along and say, we're going to wipe you out, we're going to wipe you from the face of the earth? What could this small band of believers do, whether they be in Ephesus or Smyrna or Philadelphia or Thyatira or wherever they might be? What could they do on their own? And the answer is nothing. But what can they do when they see the glory of God? 
What can they do when they recognize that it's not up to them, that it's God who is, uh, who is lifting them up and holding them up? The powers of darkness seem to be closing in upon them, and the hearts of the Christians were undoubtedly trembling. But then John said, but here's what I saw. I didn't see Caesar. I didn't see Jezebel. I didn't see the Nicolaitans having their way. I, did, I didn't see the Balaamites with their idolatry coming into the church. I saw the sovereign, almighty God who is our strength. And so he's saying to that, those churches, those seven churches that will read this whole book, not just those seven letters, but he's saying to those seven churches, listen, you have no need to fear. You need not fear Rome or Caesar or, or any of these other groups. You need not fear uh, to be gobbled up by them if you keep your eyes firmly fixed on him. It's no different for us today. No, no, no different for us today. We are, in point, we are in the place of needing to see that our God reigns. Our God omnipotent reigns. Our God of all power and authority and grace reigns from that throne that John saw and he's overseeing your life and your walk with him and he's overseeing the life and the walk of this church with him as we seek to be obedient to what he's called us to be and called us to do. These next chapters, 4 through 7, leave us with no doubt about the security of, of the people of God. Because God is the one who cares for us. The eternal Father sits on his throne, surrounded by the host of heaven, worshiping him. Uh, the, the book of destiny we find in the later chapters are in the hand of Christ. And the winds of judgment will not blow upon those who are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And so there, there is the symbols of divine sovereignty, the symbols of the Trinitarian God, Three in one, one God in three persons. The great mystery of the faith, but the great truth of the mystery of faith that reigns among us. The church's security is guaranteed in the Trinity. Just think about that, folks. Your security is guaranteed if you are in Christ, adopted by God into his family. If you are in Christ, your security is secure. By the Trinity, the Holy Trinity. So ultimately, when we have fought the good fight and finished the course, as Paul said he had, even if need be we suffered and even suffered death for the name of Christ, we shall emerge from that type of tribulation and that type of persecution. We shall, uh, we shall emerge from that and suffer no more and live and reign with him forever, John says. Because he's in control. Because he's caring for us. The king of the universe will grant us refuge in the shelter of his throne. Where we may see him and worship him day and night in his holy temple. And the lamb who's been turned into our shepherd will lead us with the rest of his sheep to the fountains of living water. Where the Holy Spirit will apply that to us and quench our thirst forever. Forever as he cares for his people. When John comes to this point, I, I almost see him as being in kind of the same place Moses was. 
You remember when Moses led the children of Israel through the wilderness, led them out of Egypt into the wilderness, had to wander for 40 years, and, and there were times when, when Moses was at the end of his rope, he saw things as they were, and he saw the people grumbling, and he saw the people uh, fussing about not having what they had back in, in Egypt. They wanted onions and garlic and leeks, and, and they grumbled about that all the time, you know, and, and you know Moses had to get frustrated with those. Well, he expressed it several times. There was one thing Moses wanted more than anything else. And he said to God in Exodus thirty-three eighteen, he said this simply, please show me your glory. Show me your glory and that'll be enough. Lord, just let me get a glimpse of your glory and it'll be enough for me. I'll know that everything is all right. It's a simple request. It's just five simple words. In Hebrew, it's only four words. All he wanted to do was see the glory of God. And he said, if I can see the glory of God, I can press on. Even with these grumbling Israelites with me. Almost slipped. I can do it if I can just see your glory. I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know if you're struggling with the the grip of the world upon you, so much so that you can't seek Him first and seek His kingdom first and seek His righteousness first because you're too sold out. You're too invested in the world. I don't know what you're What is a grip on you? But I'll tell you this, that's one of the big issues of our life today is how do we serve Christ and break from worldliness? I know that sounds more Jonathan Edwardish, 1700s-ish, than it does 21st century-ish, but it's all just the same. What will it take to pry you free from the world? What will it take to pry you free from the world's idolatries? What will it take to keep you from trusting in things that are no gods at all? My wife had to call my hand. She's not here today, so I can use her in illustration. Uh, She had to call my hand on that about two weeks ago. You know, I'm getting up there in age and 67 years, not all that time. I haven't been a preacher all that time, but I've said you can't put your trust in your 401K or your 403B or your whatever it is. You can't put your trust in that. And when the stock market tanked, I saw my retirement drop about $50,000 in four days. I went, oh, my goodness. I guess I'm going to have to work till I'm 80. And she said, what are you talking about? Where is your trust? Where is your faith? You tell everybody else they can't trust in that. Are you trusting in that? Hmm, is right. Tell you right now, I didn't like it one bit. But she was right. And I had to confess it. Repent of it. What will it take to keep you from trusting in things that are no gods at all? Have no power at all. 
What will it take to free you from the world's immoralities? What will it take to free you from from those immoralities that will will cause you to be touched by the smut of this world that really hates God and wants to pollute your mind and destroy your soul? I'll tell you what it'll take. It'll take seeing Him as He really is. Not as some... Sunday school God that's just kind of neat to talk about. Not as some kind of God that, that I've created with my own mind who says, oh, Bill, it's okay for you to do that. You know, I, I know I said in my word that was sin, but I understand you, or I understand why you're not doing that, and just don't worry about it. You're all forgiven. Don't sweat it. That's a false God, by the way. The only thing that can break you from the grip of this world and the idolatries of this world and the immoralities of this world is seeing God as He really is. High and exalted and lifted up on His throne with a seraphim and the cherubim and all the angels, all the created angels, by the way, which you will not become one, just on the side there. You'll never become an angel. They're created, they're fixed, they're in place. But they're surrounding His throne along with those who are His people, you and me, who go to live in His presence as humans, not as angels. Don't get wings, Clarence was wrong. Clarence has had more effect on our theology than the Bible has, I'm sorry. But the angels are worshiping God and the people of God are worshiping God, those who are adopted into His family, and they're worshiping Him as holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. He who was and who is and who is to come. Wow. The cure for idolatry is seeing God as He is. The cure for immorality is seeing God as He is. The cure to a godless worldview is seeing God as He is. And doing what John did. Doing what the angels did. Doing what the elders did. Who sat on thrones ruling with Him and had crowns on their head. And they took those crowns off and they laid them at the foot of Christ. And they said, Lord, You alone are worthy to be worshipped. If we had time to look at Chapters 5, 6, and 7, we would see that in in chapter 4 here that we've looked at, you, you see the worship of God around the throne saying, holy, holy, holy. And the 24 elders falling down. And there's the worship of God the Father, God omnipotent, almighty, sitting on His throne. If you looked at chapter 5 in verses 8 through 10, you would see the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before the Lamb. And they sing a new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to God, and they shall reign on the earth forever. Singing that to the Lamb, to Christ, the worship of Christ, 
And in verses 11 and 12, it says, And the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying in a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and blessing and honor. Whew! Worshiping the Father, worshiping the Son, seeing the glory of God. And I, I love that statement in in five, in five chapter uh, verses eight through ten, that says, you know, that that God has that Christ has ransomed for God by His blood people from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you made them a kingdom of priests to our God. There's pure racial equality in that, folks. There's no room for racism. There's no room for not reaching out to those who look different than us because of skin color or ethnic background. We are called to take the gospel to the nations, to the peoples. A little song you sang as a child. If you're my age, you did anyway. Jesus loves the little children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. It's true. And not just the little children, but the adults too. And then in chapter 5, you see him worshiping God and Christ together in 13 and 14. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen and Amen and Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. I mean, if you want to see a picture of heaven, if you want to see a picture of the power and the sovereignty and the glory of God, read chapters 4 through 7 of the book of Revelation. And don't get caught up in what, you know, where, the, where this is taking place and how this is taking place and what does this mean for us. It means our God omnipotent reigns. And we need fear nothing. In the first century of Christianity or in the 21st century? We need not fear the atheist. We need not fear the secularist. We need not fear those who would seek to drag us into immorality. We need not fear for anything if our eyes are fixed on the one who reigns. Let's pray. Father, this whole year as we think about upward and outward, we're thinking about revival of your people. Revival doesn't even, doesn't even begin at all with the lost. It affects the lost when your people are revived and the gospel becomes a reality in our lives. And we do what J.I. Packer says we ought to be doing, and that is gossiping the gospel everywhere we go. 
instead of gossiping about our neighbor or gossiping about our, our co-worker or gossiping about what somebody else is doing, we just gossip the gospel. Talk about Jesus. When your church is revived, that will take place. Father, it will begin when each of us get our attention off of ourselves get our eyes off of ourselves and on you when we see ourselves through you it was Calvin that said we will never know ourselves until we know you Because we will always deceive ourselves. We are the consummate idol makers. We will deceive ourselves. But when we see you in all your glory and you invade our life with that glory, Lord, it puts our perspective greatly different. Father, do that in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Stand together as we sing together. God deals with you in your life. Be obedient to Him. Right where you are, if you need to come pray, you need to come. I'm not a priest. I don't hear your confession. If you need me to pray with you or one of the other pastors, you come as we sing together.